You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 7, we will read together verses 37 through 39. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. All right, let's ask the Lord's blessing before we begin our study. Our Father, it is to your word that we turn because we believe that your word is truth and in your light we see light and the unfolding of your word brings light to our hearts and to our minds. Some of the things that we see in your word are darkness to our intellect but light to our soul. Though we cannot fully comprehend all that is revealed of our triune God, we believe it to be true because scripture has revealed it. So we thank you for everything that you have revealed about the Spirit of God, and we thank you for the Spirit's revelation and inspiration of Scripture. And now, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would guide us in our understanding of this Word to the glory of the Son and the Father, that they might be glorified through our understanding of this truth, for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, if I were to suggest to you that we were going to be able to cover the entire doctrine of the Holy Spirit in one 40-minute sermon, you would know that one of two things is true. Either I have a pathetically inept and low view of the Holy Spirit, or I'm insane. And if it is the second, it is most likely both of them, because no insane people don't have a good view of the Holy Spirit. We can't fully go through a a whole understanding of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in one passage, um, because the Holy Spirit is God. And so it would be like me saying to you, today I'm going to, in 40 minutes, tell you everything that can be said about Jesus, or everything that can be said about the Father. You just can't do that. Because the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Holy Trinity, and He is God, and He has existed for eternity, and He is just as much God as the Father and the Son, you cannot, in one message, or even a series of messages, even in a lifetime of preaching, expound the riches and exhaust the riches of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. But we're going to jump in at John chapter 7, verse 39, and we're going to look at just what this text teaches us about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The... uh, This text has enough that would serve sort of as a springboard to go off onto a series of messages on the Holy Spirit. And I am resisting that temptation because I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. There is a lot to be said about the Holy Spirit in the rest of John's Gospel. And uh, particularly when you get to chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17. And though it is weeks, perhaps even months before we get to John chapter 14, we are going to, for the point being, just sort of pace ourselves and take it in bite-sized chunks as we see the Spirit of God revealed to us in the Gospel of John. And we will see this revelation of the Spirit of God unfold for us bit by bit as we work our way through the Gospel. And trust me, I will, when we get to John 14, I will go back and recap what we learned in John 1 through 13 about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit before we really plunge deeply into that, that doctrine. John is a very Trinitarian book. And this is not the first time that we have seen the Spirit of God mentioned in the Gospel of John. I would remind you back in John chapter 1, verse 33, that John the Baptist said, I did not recognize him, that is Jesus, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, 
He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. So there we have in John's confession all three persons of the Trinity mentioned. You have the Father saying to John, the one upon whom, that is Christ, you see the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, descending, this is the one who will baptize in the Holy Spirit. There you see three distinct persons, each of them relating to each other, and mentioned in John's in, in John the Baptist's statement. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 3, beginning in verse 5, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And there in John chapter 3, the Spirit of God is portrayed to us or, or revealed to us as the one who regenerates the children of God. If you are a Christian this morning, you have been regenerated or given new life by the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who birthed you into the kingdom of God by regenerating your dead soul and giving you his very life and indwelling in you. That's John chapter 3. Then in John chapter 6, Jesus said in verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. So we already have a lot revealed to us about the Holy Spirit. Now we're up in John chapter 7, verse 39, and we have some other things revealed about the Holy Spirit. And we're just going to sort of handcuff ourselves to John chapter 7. We're not going to go too much outside of that because there's enough revealed there for us to consider this morning. In fact, three things. As I mentioned, John is a Trinitarian book. So of all of the Gospels that we would expect to see much taught about the Holy Spirit, we would expect to see it in the Gospel of John. And that's one of the reasons I chose to preach through the Gospel of John was to give us to immerse us in Trinitarian theology so that we really come to understand that our God is one God, one being, who has existed eternally as three co-eternal and co-equal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And John, as we mentioned earlier, has more to say about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit than any of the other Gospel writers. And it's not because Matthew, Mark, and Luke did not know anything about the Holy Spirit. And it's not because they were neglecting him. It's just what didn't fit into the purpose of their writing. But John is revealing to us that there is two two distinct persons of the Godhead, the Father and the Son, and primarily he's writing about the relationship between those two persons. But at the same time, it's as if he cannot talk about their relationships or their eternal divine beings without at the same time mentioning the Holy Spirit. And so we have a tremendous amount about the Holy Spirit brought into the Gospel of John because we are to understand that though there is one God, there are three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So let's jump in because we've got a lot of ground to cover with verses 38 and 39 about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We've been looking at verses 37 through 39, and I told you there are really four features to this text. We have a problem, which is our thirst. We have a provision, which is Christ. We have a promise, that is living waters to those who will believe. And then the fourth thing is we have a person revealed here, and that is the person of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're focusing in on today. What does this passage teach us about the person of the Holy Spirit? Three things, really. Now that you've got your four points down, here are the three things that the Holy, that this passage teaches about the Holy Spirit. That it was fulfilled, it is a fulfillment, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is a fulfillment of Scripture. The Holy Spirit, this is the second thing, is given to only believers and to all believers. And the ministry of the Spirit that is described here began at a certain point in time. Began at a certain point in time. So we'll cover all three of those. First, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to us and to the church is a fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. That is what Jesus indicates in verse 38 when he says, He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He points back to the Scripture, which at the time that Jesus spoke, this would have been 
the 39 Old Testament books. As the Scriptures say, the one who believes in me, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now here's what's interesting about that quotation. You will search the Old Testament Scriptures in vain for that quotation. In vain. If you go back and you look for a passage of Scripture that says that the one who believes in me, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water, you go search for that, you will not find that anywhere in the Old Testament. So what is Jesus doing? Is he confused? He's doing what he sometimes and often actually did. He is not quoting any one passage of the Old Testament. He is simply saying, this is the collective teaching of the Old Testament. What the Scripture says about the Holy Spirit is this, that there is coming a day when all who believe upon me will receive that ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he will indwell them, and out of them will flow rivers of living and refreshing water. That's the promise. That was the promise of the Old Testament. He's not just pointing to one verse in the Old Testament. He is really taking together all of the teaching of the Old Testament about the ministry of the Spirit of God under the ministration of the Messiah and in His kingdom. And He is saying, this is what collectively the Old Testament teaches. And He sums it all up with that statement, He who believes in Me out of His innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So Jesus likely had a bunch of different passages in mind. Probably Joel chapter 2, for instance. Joel chapter 2 was what Peter quoted on the day of Pentecost when he said, there's coming a day when I will pour out upon my spirit on all of mankind and your old men will dream dreams and young men will see visions. And he describes Joel and the ministry of the spirit in Joel chapter 2. In the book of Acts chapter 2, that was partially fulfilled, not fully fulfilled, but partially fulfilled. There is yet a greater fulfillment of that. But Joel spoke of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Peter later said, that's the thing, what he quotes Joel, he says, that's what you both see in here now, is the fulfillment of that prophetic scripture. So Jesus probably had that passage in mind. Let me read you a couple others he may have been thinking about. Isaiah 12, verse 3, Therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. You see how salvation there is likened to water? You come thirsty, and you joyously draw water out of the springs of salvation. That was the prophecy. Isaiah 44, verse 3, I will pour out water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Isaiah 55, verse 1, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Isaiah 58, verse 11, And the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones. And you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Rivers of living water, that's the idea. Zechariah 13.1, speaking of a day when Israel will be saved, says, In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for impurity, a fountain. So Jesus is really drawing upon all of these allusions in the Old Testament to salvation being likened to a spring or a fountain out of which we drink lush, refreshing water. That's the imagery of the Old Testament. So that's what he's describing. In the Old Testament, it was promised that the one who believed upon the Messiah would receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember the water ceremony we talked about two weeks ago that happened in the temple where they poured out the water on the sacrifice? Remember describing that? What was that portraying, picturing, or looking forward to? It was looking forward to, in the minds of the Jews, to that day when the Messiah would come and God would pour out His Holy Spirit, just as those Old Testament passages predicted, as I described to you. That day when God would, under the ministry of the Holy of the Messiah, pour out His Holy Spirit upon all the inhabitants of the earth. They were looking forward to that day. They were longing for that day. That was the promise. And so that's what Jesus is alluding to. The promise of Scripture is, when you believe upon the Messiah, you receive the refreshment of the Holy Spirit who comes to live and indwell you. That was what Ezekiel promised. I will put my Spirit within you. That was the promise of the New Covenant. Your, my Spirit will dwell within you. And so Jesus is summing all of that up. 
Friends, do you realize that God promised to you all the way back in the Old Testament that He would someday fill you with His Holy Spirit because of your belief in His Son? That was God's promise to you. Does that blow you away? That blows me away. Actually, that promise will go back all the way prior to the Old Testament. I would say that promise was given all the way back in eternity past when the Father gave a people to His Son. That was the intention. So the coming of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit, that wasn't plan B. It's not like the Father said, oh, they, they rejected and crucified my Son. Now what am I going to do? Well, I guess I'll resurrect Him and bring Him back to heaven and then send the Holy Spirit to help them out when they believe upon Him because they're really going to need it. It's going to be rough down there. It wasn't plan B. It was the intention of God in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, prior to creation even, that those who would place their faith upon His Son in the crucified and risen Lord would receive the indwelling blessing of the Holy Spirit. So that the Spirit of God, the third member of the Trinity, dwells within us when we believe upon Christ. It was the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise. That was God's expectation. When you believe, you get my Spirit within you. That was the promise. Does that amaze you? Does that, has that ceased to amaze you? I guess I should say. My guess is it ceased to amaze us. That God Himself in the person of the Holy Spirit dwells within each of His people and all of us corporately as a church. The second thing, the Holy Spirit is given to only believers and to all believers. We learned, first of all, that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is a fulfillment of all the Old Testament Scripture. And then second, the Spirit of God is given only to believers and to all believers. Now look at verse 38. The promise is that he who believes in Christ, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Verse 39, but this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. What is the precursor? What is the requirement for receiving the Holy Spirit? It is believing upon Christ. The Holy Spirit does not indwell the world. It does not indwell unbelievers. He does not indwell unbelievers. The Holy Spirit does not indwell unbelievers. You know why? Because the Spirit of God does not unite himself to the children of Satan. And those who have never repented of their sin and trusted Christ and been regenerated and justified and adopted into His family and resurrected and given new life, they don't get the Holy Spirit. There's no such thing as an unbeliever indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's impossible. Just as it is impossible that that there should be something as a believer who is not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is only given to believers. Jesus said in John 14, verse 17, that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is only to believers. There's no such thing as a third group of people. You have, viewed from this vantage point, two groups of humanity. You have those who have been regenerated and are indwelt by the Spirit of God. And you have those who have never been regenerated and are not indwelt by the Spirit of God. And the one who has been regenerated is indwelt by the Spirit of God by necessity because the life that we have, which is eternal life, is a byproduct of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who regenerates us. It is His life. It is divine life that has made us alive in Him. He regenerates us and He gives us His life. So there's no third group. There's no group in the middle that is made up of believers who don't have the Holy Spirit or unbelievers who do have the Holy Spirit. And it's not like we progress from being an unregenerate, unfilled person where we don't believe and we don't have the Holy Spirit, and then we kind of come to a point where we are believers and we have been regenerated and justified, but we don't yet have the Holy Spirit, and then we eventually evolve or progress to being somebody who is filled and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's not possible. There's only two groups of people. Those who are unregenerate and have not the Spirit of God, and those who are regenerate and have the Spirit of God. 
Romans 8 verse 9 says, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Does the Spirit of God dwell in you? Then you're not in the flesh. You're not carnal. You're not an unbeliever. You're not of the flesh. You're not a product of the flesh. You're of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. Have you ever say to yourself, I do not have the Holy Spirit living in me. If that's the case, you don't belong to Christ. Don't be deceived. You're not a believer. There's no such thing as somebody who has believed but has not received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given only to believers, and the Holy Spirit is given to all believers. One of the amazing blessings that we read about in Ephesians 1 is that having been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, one of those blessings is the sealing of the Holy Spirit. We read it in chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. In Him, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed with Him in the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. To believe is to be filled with, to be indwelt, and to be sealed with the Holy Spirit. And you cannot lose that Holy Spirit. You might quench the Holy Spirit, you might grieve the Holy Spirit, but you do not ever lose the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. As long as you belong to Christ, having begun in Him, having been given by Him, you are His, you get the Holy Spirit, and you have the Holy Spirit from this point all the way through eternity. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 says, We are being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together and growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom also you are being built together as a dwelling of God in the Spirit. It describes us. We are, individually and corporately, a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And somebody asked me a question a couple of months ago, and this took me a bit by surprise because I'd never given any thought to this question. So I didn't quite at first know how to answer it, and so I was slow to answer it. And the question was this. When we get to heaven, will we still be indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Will we still have the Holy Spirit in us? When we get to heaven, will we still have the Holy Spirit in us? That was a good question. I never thought about that. I guess I'd always just assumed that it was the case that I would have the Holy Spirit forever. But the, the questioner brought up this, this point. He said, in heaven, there will be no sin, and we will be free from sin, and there will be no flesh, no sinful nature, none of that. And so what will what good would the Holy Spirit be? I didn't mean that in a blasphemous sense, but we won't have any need for the Holy Spirit, I guess is the sense. We won't have any need for the Holy Spirit since we'll be free from sin. Good question, isn't it? I think that the, an- the, the answer to the question rests in the text that I just gave you from Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to this again. Ephesians chapter 2. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Paul's describing the church. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building, that is the whole church, all of his elect, all of his chosen stones, being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now here's the here's the analogy that Paul uses. The church is like a building. Just as a building consists of many individual and separate parts, all put together, functions as a dwelling place for people, so it is that the church of the living God is like a building. A bunch of little unique parts. Me, you, all of us being fit together with the saints of everybody since Pentecost, all believers, and all the people who will come to faith in Christ in the future. All of them brought together, put together into this building for a dwelling of God in the Spirit. What is it that is being built together in the church? It is a dwelling place, a spiritual temple of the dwelling of God in the Spirit. Peter In 1 Peter chapter 2 says we are like living stones. Each of us, little unique stones, put into this building. right? Being fitted together. For what purpose? For the dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now listen, 
Does it make sense to you that God would put together this spiritual temple in the Lord for His dwelling? And when is that going to be complete? When the last of God's elect basically comes to Him. When the last living stone is placed in the building, it will be finished. Does it make sense to you that God, having finished that building, would then abandon it for all of eternity? Or that He would dwell in it for all of eternity? Since that's the point. That's why we are being put together. We are being fit together as a dwelling of God in the Spirit. He dwells within each of us individually, and He dwells among His people and in His church corporately. So the purpose of the church is to be gathered together, called out of all the world over all those ages, being fit together for a dwelling of God for all of eternity. I believe that we will experience the indwelling and infilling of the Holy Spirit in the new heavens and new earth and our glorified body in heaven for all of eternity in ways that we cannot hear because of our flesh. We cannot hear because of our flesh. It's not that the Holy Spirit will be unnecessary in eternity. It's that then we will be able to experience all of the fellowship and intimacy and joy that is communicated to us in our union with Him in ways that were not possible because of our sinfulness and our fallen flesh. So I believe the Holy Spirit will indwell His people corporately and individually for all of eternity. Just my thoughts. The third thing we learned about the Holy Spirit, not only is the ministry of the Holy Spirit a fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecy regarding Him, but second, He is given only to believers and to all believers. And then the third thing we learn about the Holy Spirit is that this ministry that is described in John chapter 7 began at a certain point in time. You see that in verse 39. But this He spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive, future tense, who, uh, who uh, believed in Him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus is describing something that was not true at the present moment when He spoke. In other words, the disciples were there and the disciples could attest that they had faith in the Messiah, all of them except for Judas. They could attest that they had faith in the Messiah, that their sins were forgiven, that they were justified and declared righteous in the sight of God. But they did not at this moment experience and enjoy the thing that you and I now experience and enjoy, and that is the permanent indwelling and power of the Holy Spirit. The disciples didn't have that. They did not have it. They were to receive it because the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was different than the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. In the the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon an individual for a certain purpose. The Spirit of God would come upon somebody for a period of time or to accomplish a certain purpose because of a divinely given task or a commission or an office, maybe priest or prophet or king, the Spirit of God would come upon that person. But no Old Testament saint could ever say what you and I can say today, that Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. No Old Testament saint could ever say, I have within me the Spirit of God. And He dwells within me. And He is united to me. And He has taken me as His own. And I have Him as my own. And I can never be separated from Him. And I receive His power and His illumination and His conviction and His love and His affection and His comfort and His encouragement and His strength for service. No Old Testament saint could ever say that. Because the ministry of the Holy Spirit under the Old Covenant was different than the ministry of the Holy Spirit under the New Covenant. There came a day when the ministry that Jesus is describing here of the Holy Spirit began. You know what that day was? It was the day of Pentecost, when the church was born, when the church age was inaugurated. That was the beginning of this ministry of the Holy Spirit that John is describing. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, Jesus said this, and this is 
after his resurrection, after his uh, crucifixion, resurrection, just prior to his ascension. Jesus said, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Now listen to this. Jesus said, And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. That was something he was going to do. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Stay in Jerusalem. I'm sending the promise of the Father to you. You stay here until you are clothed with power from on high. There was something that was promised that Jesus is saying you need to stay here and wait for it. Now Luke, the same author, in Acts chapter 1 says, Jesus gathered them together. He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. Which, he said, now this is quoting Jesus, you heard from me, you heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it this time you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And then ten days later, that promise was fulfilled. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus said, there's a promise, he's coming, it's not yet, you're going to get what has been promised. What was promised? Back in John chapter 7, we have an example of that. You have it in John chapter 16 as well. Jesus promising, when I leave, I will send the Holy Spirit. That was the promise of the Father. Right? He says, stay in Jerusalem until that happens. Ten days later, it happened. When the Holy Spirit came upon them with power. That was when this ministry described here of the Holy Spirit, of indwelling us, his church, began on the day of Pentecost. Not prior to that, not during Jesus' earthly ministry, and at no time into the Old Covenant in the Old Testament did the Spirit of God relate to his people like he does today. In Acts chapter 2, after the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and tongues, Peter said this, Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth that which you both see and hear. And you notice how Peter there connects the pouring out of the Holy Spirit with the exaltation of Jesus. Having been exalted to the right hand of the Father, he has received the promise, that which he promised, and now he has poured it out just as he promised in fulfillment to his promise. When did the ministry of the Holy Spirit described in John chapter 7 begin? began on the day of Pentecost. That is when a new relationship to his people was inaugurated. That was when the Spirit of God came to dwell not upon and not just among the people, but within the people of God. And the disciples got that Holy Spirit. And from that point forward, anytime somebody believes upon Christ, he receives the Holy Spirit, not later, but at the moment of his justification and his salvation. That is the ministry of the Holy Spirit described. Now, when John says that the Holy Spirit was not yet given, what does he mean by that? Does John mean that the Holy Spirit did not yet exist? Right? Those who would believe upon him were to receive the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit had not yet been given. Did he mean that the Holy Spirit did not yet exist? He didn't mean that, because even in the Old Testament, they believed in and knew of the Holy Spirit. It's revealed in Old Testament text. The Spirit of God was active at creation. It was active, he was active in the flood. The Holy Spirit was active in regenerating people in the Old Testament and in uh, granting them repentance and leading them to faith. That was the activity of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit as God has eternally existed. So did John mean, though, that then that the Holy Spirit was not yet active or involved in people's lives under the Old Testament? He didn't mean that. And sometimes people have a, a weird view of the Holy Spirit as if for 4,000 years of human history, the Holy Spirit sort of sat in heaven twiddling his thumbs until the time was right, and then the Father said, now, go get them. That's not how it unfolded. That's not how it shook down. The Holy Spirit was always active, always working from the moment of creation 
we see him, Genesis 1 verse 2, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters at creation, and the Spirit of God is involved in all of the activities of God in the Old Testament, inspiring Scripture, revealing truth to the prophets, uh, coming upon people for certain tasks, illuminating Scripture to people. The Holy Spirit was involved in all of that activity. It just means that what Jesus is describing, the innermost being filled and flowing out of living waters, that did not yet happen because that required the glorification of the Son. The Son needed to be crucified, buried, raised from the dead, ascended and exalted to the right hand of the Father. Then, from that exalted position, the Son and the Father would send the Holy Spirit to be the comforter and the guide, and then to indwell His people. So all of that changed at the New Testament with the New Covenant. All right. Now, you and I are post-Pentecost. By that, I mean that not that we are you know, post-Pentecostal. I'm not saying anything about any denominations here, but we live post-Pentecost. Jesus is describing something on one side of an event. He is describing that event, and you and I live on the other side of the event. The event. So Jesus and the disciples in John 7 were looking forward to something that was going to happen. That thing has already happened. Now, you and I, 2,000 years later, we look back upon something that has happened. So then we have to ask the question, since we live on this side of that promise, what are some of the implications for you and I? How does this work out in our lives? Well, let me offer to you three applications or implications of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I already mentioned this one, but if you belong to Christ, then you have the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to Him. So if you think to yourself, yeah, I believed in Jesus, but I've never been regenerated, I've never been given a new heart, I don't have a spiritual gift, and the Spirit of God doesn't dwell in me, then you haven't believed in Jesus. Whatever you think your belief is, it's inadequate, it's not saving faith, you're still lost. You're either regenerate and you have the Holy Spirit, or you're unregenerate and you don't have the Holy Spirit. There's no middle ground. So if you have the Holy Spirit, then that means that you have also been gifted by the Spirit of God. This is something different, and really a subject for a whole other time, because it's a big one. But if you are a believer in Christ, you have been given a unique capacity by which the Spirit of God works through you to serve other people for the good of His church and the glory of its King. That is the ministry of the Spirit of God today. You have been given a gift, a unique manifestation of the Spirit of God by which He works through you to serve other people for the good of the church and the glory of its King. That is what the Spirit of God does in you as a believer. So now my question to you would be, have you ever given any thought at all to how it is that the Spirit of God wants to use you to bless other people, to serve other people. Out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water of refreshment, not just for yourself, but to others. We are not pools of stagnant water that just sit there and collect mosquitoes. We are fountains of living water whose intention it is to be a fountain of refreshment and life to other people. So the question is, have you given any thought to how the Spirit of God wants to work through you and in you for the good of other people and the glory of the King? Have you given some thought to that? You should give some thought to that. What is the way in which the Spirit of God works through you to serve and to bless other people? Or are you not interested in that at all? You just come here because you want to get something, not because you want to give something. The second implication is that you and I ought not to neglect, we ought not to neglect the worship and praise and thanksgiving which we should give to the Holy Spirit. Is it uncomfortable for you to praise the Holy Spirit and to thank the Holy Spirit? We talked about this in Sunday school. There's kind of an evangelicalism, a spectrum, as it were, of people. On the one side, you have sort of the extreme charismatics who focus on nothing but the Holy Spirit and attribute every type of bizarre manifestation you can imagine to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And on the other side of the spectrum, all the way at the other end, are the people who don't even want to say the term Holy Spirit lest they get some sort of 
liver quiver or unleash him in some way and have some power in their hands that they don't know how to handle. Those are the two sort of spectrums within, that's the two sort of ends of a spectrum in evangelicalism. Where on that spectrum do you fall? Do you lean toward the one side? Are you over here in this camp? The wacky charismatic camp? Not if you've been here more than one Sunday, you're not, because you wouldn't feel comfortable here. But I would guess that for most of us who are rather conservative in our theology, we probably tend over to this side, if not lean a little bit this side, and we have to have somebody kind of grab onto us every once in a while and say, hey, 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 the Holy Spirit is God. He is a person, and as God, He is worthy of our worship and our praise and our thanksgiving and our adoration. And we ought to have our worship and our prayer life informed by this Trinitarian doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has regenerated us. He has indwelt us. He has gifted us. He empowers us. He comforts us. He illuminates us. He convicts us of sin. He reminds us of what is in Scripture. He gifts us to service. He does all of those things. Thank Him for those things. It is appropriate in your prayers to pray to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, because to pray to any one of those persons is to pray to the triune God of the New Testament. So don't neglect the Holy Spirit. Don't... Don't fall over into this ditch and, and be bent over here and, and go flopping around in the extreme extreme camp. That's not what I'm saying. But let's pull ourselves back a little bit and say, you know what, we, we ought to give proper adoration and praise to the person of the Holy Spirit because He is worthy of that. He is worthy of that. And we ought to ask Him to do the things that Scripture says He does. Illuminate me, comfort me, guide me, protect me. Uh, give me, uh, Give me insight into Your Word. Uh, convict me of my sin and restore unto me the joy of my salvation and uh, cause my, your countenance to shine upon me and, and give me joy in these things. That Those are things that is appropriate to ask the Spirit of God to do. So we ought not to neglect it. Listen, you, you and I might be put off a bit by the extremes of the charismatic movement, but it is just as much a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit to neglect Him as it is to attribute to Him things that He has never done. It's just as much a blasphemy. So we need to be careful. We need to not neglect the worship and thanksgiving and adoration of the Spirit of God. And third... If you're a Christian and you have the Holy Spirit, and this one I think is important, you have the power to obey God. There's no command given in Scripture to you or to your family that you do not at the same time have the power to obey. No unbeliever can say that because no unbeliever has the Holy Spirit. Unbelievers can't please God. They can't obey God. They lack the ability. They lack the ability even to believe apart from the work of God. They certainly cannot obey Him and do righteous acts and just deeds in His sight. Unbelievers cannot obey Him. But you, if you are a believer, you have the power to obey Every command He has given to His church and to believers, you have, with that command, the power to obey that command. So no believer can ever say, I I can't obey that. That's not true. You can't obey that. You can obey it. It would be more accurate for you to say, I I don't want to obey that. But you can't say, "I I don't, I can't obey that. You can't say that. Only if you are an unbeliever can you say that. If you are a Christian, you have the power to obey every command that God has given to you. Every imperative. You have the power to obey. You might not have the will to obey it, but you certainly have the power to obey it because His Spirit dwells in you and He is the one who energizes our hearts and empowers us to obey Him. Now how amazing is this? This is a glorious salvation, is it not? That God has not only given His Son for our sins, but that He, on top of giving His Son for our sins and atoning for them and completely forgiving us of all of our sins, past, present, and future, and justifying us in His sight, adopting us into His family, giving us redemption, the forgiveness of sins, lavishing upon us His love. All of that is more than I could ever ask for. But He has not only done all of that, He has also come to indwell His people. And so He lives within me, 
to illuminate and empower and encourage and comfort and strengthen me to obey his commands and energizes my heart to love and to serve him. That is above and beyond anything that we could have ever asked, is it not? Are you still amazed by that? Our only response to such truth should be to have our jaws drop open and say, what an amazing God. That he would save us and then that he would indwell us, not only individually, but his church corporately and empower us to love and serve and worship him. What an amazing God. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our gracious God, we are thankful that you have gone beyond and above and beyond all that we could ask or even think in salvation. When we cried out to you at first, our desire was just to have forgiveness, to experience refreshing and to be given eternal life, to avoid hell and to experience the blessings and joys of heaven for all of eternity. That was all that we asked for and longed for, and yet you have gone beyond that. And the more that we look at your word, we see just what you have done. You've given us also of your spirit. We thank you, O Spirit of God, that you dwell within us and that you do that work of regenerating and that you have given us life. We thank you, O Son, for dying on the cross for our sins and atoning fully the price that we owed. We thank you, Father, for predestining us to salvation, electing us and choosing us and redeeming us, for sending your Son and then pouring out upon us the Holy Spirit. We worship and serve you, O our great triune God, for all that you have done for us in salvation and all that you have promised yet to do for us in the future. We ask that you would glorify yourself, O God, in the power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.